passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleOmics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting live and on demand for Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, October the 2nd, 2022. And I'm joined, as always, by Chris Gullo to my immediate south. I think we're actually in the right, right uh, configuration yes. this time. And to my far east, the east coast, Jesse Collins. Hello to you both. Hello. Good morning. Hi. Who are the Bills playing today? The Baltimore Ravens. Oh, the Ravens. Okay. Yeah. Um, what are we going to talk about today, Chris Call? Uh, we are going to discuss uh, ticket sales and TV ratings trends for WWE and AEW as Q3 2022 has come to a close. We'll also discuss something we've talked about here before, a flow of talent. Uh, we're going to get into that a little bit there. Uh, but first... Uh, the passing of Antonio Inoki. Yeah, uh, Antonio Inoki passed away to at least our time Friday. Uh, it was even acknowledged on SmackDown. Um, and uh, this has made mainstream news, not, ju- not just in Japan, but ESPN has covered this. CNN has covered it. The New York Post has covered it. It was at least two stories. Uh, we've got ABC News with an article. I don't know, this has made, made it to like TV news, but but at least online. Uh, the Guardian UK, the Hollywood Reporter covering it. Um, many of them noting his connection to Muhammad Ali, the famous fight. Have, you, have either of you ever actually seen the fight with Muhammad Ali? I, I don't think it's online right now, but at certain points I was able to find it. I, I haven't seen the full fight before. I have seen highlights of the fight, which makes me feel like I've seen the whole fight because there weren't many highlights in it. That makes and, sense. Yeah, what I think I've just seen is, highlights. Yeah, what, what would you say is the reputation of that fight? It's a farce. It's a you know, it was promoted heavily as a a fight between the wrestler and a boxer, and then mm-hmm. it ended up with mostly Anoki lying on his back like a porn star and kicking at Muhammad Ali's legs. I, I think I think at one point I watched the entire thing and I thought. I'm expecting this incredibly boring fight because I read the Observer talk about how boring it is. I thought it was not that boring, I, and and I thought that Inoki spent less time on his back than I expected him to spend. Although he did spend a lot of time in in what became known as the Inoki Ali position. Um, but yeah, that was closed circuit TV, 
a time in 1976 before there was pay-per-view. Uh, not the success that WrestleMania would be in closed circuit, uh, but one of the early attempts at that. But, I mean, in, in WrestleNomics uh, terms, Inoki's definitely one of the biggest draws, one of the, one of the biggest stars, I guess not just in Japanese wrestling, but in wrestling in general. Um, his retirement show in 1998, he had a long Inoki countdown building up to his retirement show in April 1998 uh, at the Tokyo Dome. Which, according to, I think this is derived from the Observer, but this is on ProWrestlingHistory.com, that drew seven million dollars at the gate in the Tokyo Dome. Um, I know the the lore at one point was that this drew seventy thousand fans. Yes, the um, Tokyo Dome's very, um, very unspecific capacity that the Tokyo Dome has for wrestling it can range anywhere from thirty thousand fans to seventy thousand fans. Yes. It, until recently, I believe pro wrestling history was listing it at seventy thousand fans. Right, but as as we've learned, what the Tokyo Dome actually will hold, uh, it's been lowered to fifty seven. Anyway, the, but the seven million dollar report is 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 still listed uh, by uh, prowrestlinghistory.coms. If if we take that for granted, and this is a chart that I did in two thousand nineteen uh, that doesn't need to be updated because there isn't anything I think that's made this list since two thousand nineteen. Given the pandemic, took out a lot of live events for a while um so this is the the top four gates of all time if we adjust this to inflation to 2019 u.s dollars the top four are pretty recent wrestlemanias between 2016 and 2019 uh but after that uh an, an event that i question whether we should include here and whether we should whether we should be including the the saudi arabia events in which case all of the biggest Gates, I don't think it's quite right to call them gates, though, but all the biggest live events in terms of money would be Saudi Arabia events because those are all $55-0 million each. But anyway, after those top four, which are WrestleManias in the modern stadium era, after that we have the, uh, the, the Pyongyang Sports Festival in North Korea, which was a New Japan WCW show. Yeah. Uh, that was Antonio Inoki putting that together, too. Right, and that's Antonio Inoki versus Ric Flair. Yeah. Uh, People were probably ordered to go. They weren't really going uh, at their own will. Uh, but after that, we have a couple more recent WrestleManias, and then another, the day two of Pyongyang Sports Festival, Collision in Korea, as many people would know it. Um, and then, uh, so you could say, you know, these all these other shows kind of fit maybe an exceptional criteria. I guess, the, I mean, obviously, the, the modern WrestleManias are what they are. But the, these, this government show, we have this other government show. And then after that, we do have the biggest New Japan show, I guess you could say, of all time, probably, uh, is, is the Inoki Retirement Show in 1998, where he takes on Don Fry. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and any, any thoughts and memories of, of Antonio Inoki here? Um, so I wrote something for Voices of Wrestling. Um, I don't believe it's published yet, but probably will be published either today or tomorrow. Um, on Antonio Inoki, um, just about um, his his incredible confidence and his belief in himself and how time and time again throughout his career, he spurred it forward by believing that he could do pretty much anything uh, in pro wrestling and it motivated him to, to such tremendous heights. Um, you pointed out the the Inoki final, the the you know show at the Tokyo Dome that was held. If you if you disqualify the Pyongyang shows, held the record for biggest gate for more than a decade, um, which is ridiculously impressive when you consider 
just the way the you know inflation and the way the economy has worked and how expensive tickets have become and how many stadium shows WWE has run. The fact that it lasted from 1998 to 2013 is is pretty incredible. The um, but he also ran stadium shows before that. He was kind of people had run stadium shows in wrestling before. There's WrestleMania three. There's SummerSlam at Wembley. There's some other WrestleManias, but. Inoki and New Japan Pro Wrestling during the you know late eighties and then into the nineties really kind of standardized stadium show and running the Tokyo Dome and running a few other those buildings in Japan drew stadium shows for for major shows constantly um, in the nineties. Just, just looking at the the Pro Wrestling History International shows, which is where I had to go to, to find the the Collision Korea data this morning. He ran. I didn't know about this. And there's no. There isn't a lot of detailed data, but he ran a lot of stadium shows in Pakistan. Apparently, that I didn't really have any idea about. No, I mean he's the reason he's cracked the so many. I think uh, mainstream media in America sources for his obituary is because he's just got an incredibly fascinating life that you don't have to know anything about professional wrestling to read his obituary and be like, this guy's career is incredible um the biggest thing to me at least as like a historian of wrestling is that you're kind of you kind of discover that there are a few wrestlers that are really true icons in their culture um and they're not really in the united states because the way the u.s sporting culture is as popular as hulk hogan or steve austin can be they don't seem to crack the true cult they're really just small potatoes and when it comes to the true cultural consciousness of a country i feel like ricky dozan giant baba antonio inoki and el santo are kind of like the four that you really get taught about as kind of transcending professional wrestling transcending sports and becoming genuine national heroes in their countries and you know ricky dozan died in 1963 you know el santo and giant baba have been dead for decades the only one left for a really long time was antonio inoki he was for generations he was the only true i think cultural icon that existed in professional wrestling and his roots and his legacy extended all the way back to the very foundation of professional wrestling in japan um and so he hasn't really been that involved in wrestling lately so it's hard to say like oh you know it's sad that his presence is gone from a literal standpoint because he really hasn't been involved lately uh for the last few years he's been in poor health but it's still um really sad to see someone of that legacy and that caliber who carried kind of the the legacy of 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 true cultural prominence through professional wrestling um during a time period when it was way more ubiquitous in its culture uh to and so it's sad to see he's gone now that that whole era that whole generation of pro wrestling kind of cracking that mainstream appeal is gone uh and i it's really hard to envision it ever coming back in in any culture yeah it's He's noted as being somebody who's very influential on MMA. He tried to style himself as – do you have something else? Yeah, I was going to bring that. I, one thing that I think is kind of lost on his legacy is, you know, the offshoot promotions didn't do as well, obviously, when he was running New Japan. But he did, did introduce a lot of mixed martial artists to the world of professional wrestling and some that are still doing it to this day, Josh Barnett being one of them. Um and I, I think that's huge. He blended in those two worlds before we really saw it really done in the last recent few years with blood sport and promotions like that. Yeah. He styled himself. Uh, I remember you know, like my memories as being a, like a Japanese wrestling fan, tape trader, 
in in my teens is like getting getting a tape called Radical Flights that would that chronicled the history of New Japan from like the very beginning up until the '90s and seeing all these highlights of him fighting in pro wrestling matches, uh, you know, people who are from various martial arts disciplines, and then watching Pride shows, which were at their peak in the early 2000s. And I don't know what exactly his involvement was with Pride or with Dream Stage, but he would always have a moment, as he would on Tokyo Dome shows for New Japan, too, at the time. He would always have a moment where he would get to come out and do his entrance and do his Genki Deska and, and the, you know, the, the countdown, Ichini Sanda, um, I think somebody shared the video of, of him like parachuting into the to the Dynamite Shockwave show in 2002, which was this huge stadium show for for Pride. Um, but yes, I have many many memories of uh, Enochism uh, ravaging New Japan in the early 2000s as well, which we may touch on um, in, in a he, way later. Also, uh, he appeared in the Bad News Bears Go to Japan. I don't even know if you remember that movie, but uh, that sounds that- familiar. That was the sequel to the Bad News Bears in 1978, and he's uh, he's in that movie. He actually like wrestles the the the, the little league uh, uh, baseball players. Yeah, I mean, he used the first person to kind of really heavily promote the concept of mixed martial arts, um, and these were works, with the exception of the Ali fight, which was a shoot. But, and the Great Antonio match that turned into right, but Great Antonio that was a that was promoted, I think, as a wrestling match, was it not? I mean, he would like when he would wrestle like Wim Vruska, the the Dutch judoka Olympic champion. The promotion for it was that this is going to be a real fight. This isn't going to be like fake pro wrestling, which sounds completely absurd in the sense that if you were to promote that as real pro wrestling, you're admitting that all your other matches are fake. But um, that never stopped Inoki and. Uh, yeah, he would wrestle like, you know, he'd fight these karate guys and he'd fight a lot of judokas and um, was the first person to kind of present this product of like what would happen if this person that's a master of one discipline fought another person who's a master of an- another discipline. Um, and obviously that would eventually take off with the first UFC show and then obviously the explosion of growth in MMA across the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there is going to be a... Uh a show that John Pollock and W.H. Parker are going to do where they're going to go into a lot more depth about uh, the, the life and career of Antonio Inoki, and that'll be out uh, Sunday, which is today as we're recording this. Um, but we'll, we'll go on to, to other things, including WNAW business in Q3. Chris Cole, though, if people want to participate, how do they do that? Yeah, so if you look on your little YouTube stream there under where you can ask a question, there's a dollar sign. Uh, so when you ask your question, uh, put a super chat amount, any amount you see fit for the question, and we'll answer them either throughout the show or at the end of the show, depending on the, the timeliness of the question. So it is October 2nd, which means we are at the end of a calendar quarter. Our calendar quarter just ended on September 30th. WWE, for example, uses the calendar year as their as, fiscal year. So their Q3 has just ended. Um, they'll probably record or report earnings, usually around Halloween time is when they do their Q3 report. Um, so we're going to go through s- some stuff. I'm not going to dig into like Google Trends or YouTube today, but we're going to go through attendance first, uh, probably TV ratings later, um, and just l- look at where things uh, are. So I wanted to bringing this out too that there are like three different ways to to talk about i guess at least wrestlenomic subjects and I, I feel like in most wrestling related discussions that i hear um 
there isn't a the all of these things aren't fully explored i think there's we there's first we can talk about data which in our case in like the purest form is just like numbers and strings in a spreadsheet um and data is usually too big and too complicated and too complex for for anybody to just simply look at it and and the narrative to be obvious and then what we do here sometimes is we do analysis which is where we look at the data and we tell you that some based on the data we can say such and such is the case you know the tv ratings were up 32 percent compared to a year ago or something like that that's what i think is analysis and then we have we know that this this difference we can say based on the data that there is this difference of say 32% 10% whatever it is and then the next level is to say why that is the case which we might call insight um and i think when when for the most part when i when i listen to people talk about wrestling conversations um talk about wrestling subjects there's one of these things especially insight is 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 made and i don't know if there's always great data or even uh clear analysis that that underpins it um but yeah we'll we'll, we'll talk about we'll, i'll try to 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 do all of these things as we go through all of these subjects here um but with that said i th- we did a show a few weeks ago a month ago i think it was maybe like late august or something like that talking about the momentum of WNAW and has the momentum shifted the title of the, the podcast was in the form of a question and i feel pretty confident now though based on looking at the data and and the directions of that data that that the momentum really has shifted between WAW we'll get into the reasons why um AEW's advances of late uh, are not that strong so we we had a, a number of of shows go on sale for AEW in this past week uh in the past I've been sort of reticent to get into advances not knowing what to really compare them to so I've got over here on the far right column um Here's a bunch of shows that are upcoming for AEW. I believe these are maybe all of the shows currently on the screen that are upcoming and that tickets are currently currently on sale for for AEW. Um, and then on the far right column, we've got what those shows in the same town did for a final count according to WrestleTix. This is all WrestleTix data, by the way. Uh, and then comparing that to as of the most recent count which is over here, which is all within the last few days, what the most recent count is and then what the final count was for the same te- uh, the same market's most recent show. So anyway, we have Washington, D.C. coming up on this coming week, which is both a dynamite and a rampage and a battle, uh, battle of the belts. Um, that's at just over 2,000 for the dynamite, just under 2,000 for the Friday rampage and battle of the belts. Last time they were there, they did 3,200. Now, maybe you could say, well, like a lot of the demand for that is spread across these two events. You could say, well, really, if you combine them, they're doing over 4,000 tickets out, which would be more than, than this 3,200. So maybe we put that to the side. Toronto is the first time they're visiting that market. They're going to Coca-Cola Coliseum. They've got over 6,000, almost 7,000 out for the, the Dynamite, almost 5,000 out for the Rampage. Um, and then I think we start to get into some clearer cases. Uh, Cincinnati, only 3,000 out. Last time they were there, uh, they did 6,800. Norfolk, they're at just over 2,000. Last time they were there, they did over 4,800. 
uh, Uncastville, which I thought they had been to before, but looking into it, I guess they hadn't been, but they have been to other places in Connecticut. That's Uncastville. Am I saying that right? Uncastville? Uncastville, Connecticut? Yeah, um, and they, um, I believe they were in Bridgeport yes. before, which isn't, going, Bridgeport's going not Bridgeport. super close. I, I did the, yeah, I did the Google map. It's over an hour drive away, uh, the, yeah. the two cities within Connecticut. But uh, Uncastville, they haven't been to uh, that particular town before. That's at 3,768. Uh, Baltimore, though, I think we've got a pretty clear case of a week, a week advance. 1,600. Compare that to what they've done on the average is 4,500. Atlantic City, 1,000 out. Compare that to what they've done before, 5,800. Boston, 2,300. Compare that to what they've done before, 5,600. Bridgeport, 1,000. 700, let's call it, compare, compare that to the almost 6,000 that they've done before. All of these shows as I'm going down in chronological order are getting a little bit further and a little bit further into the future. Uh, so there's more of an excuse the further down I go on this list for the, the, the advance not being fully realized yet. Nonetheless, this is, these gaps are pretty wide. These are by the thousands. Newark, New Jersey, which is full gear, is at nearly 10,000 out, which is in line. The, the biggest premium events, these pay-per-view events that, that people really want to see, I, I, I feel, yes, those are still doing well. The new markets are still doing well. Seattle has 6000 out for the January 4th Dynamite that they're doing there. Uh, but the, the Chicago Dynamite scheduled for uh, around Thanksgiving time, just under 4000 out. Uh, this is a, co- a combination. This 9600 number is a combination of all the shows on the average that they've done in, in the Chicago and... Um, I think just the Chicago market, so that wouldn't include Hoffman Estates because I'm using the actual word Chicago to determine this number. But anyway, I think these are these are some stories where we have some weak advances here, um, and and I think this is this is at a level that we've not seen before, at least you know I guess not 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 ever before in AW's case since the return to touring, or even when they were pre pre COVID, they were still running pretty hot. Um, so, the, again, the, the cities that I would look at here that are pretty clearly, to me, weak advances, maybe Washington, D.C., maybe not. But the rest, Atlantic City, Baltimore, Boston, Norfolk, Cincinnati, I, I view as weak advances based on the, the gap between their last count and what they've done there in the past. Uh, Newark is doing well for full gear. It's a pay-per-view. Toronto and Seattle are doing well. Uh, those are first-time markets, and if we accept that, what I'm saying here is that that's a negative story. Um, I guess that's that. There's some data, there's some analysis. So why is that happening? Um, I think some of the reasons are AW is not as hot as it, as it once was, which we could unpack further into other reasons. I think part of it is part of it is CM Punk, Kenny Omega, the Young Bucks are out hurt. Um, I think. Tony Khan not being universally cheered anymore, getting mixed reactions, getting some booze when he comes out and, and, and does his, his hyping up with the crowd, which I've, I've read has continued to happen in places beyond where we saw it happen in person in Buffalo. I think that should tell you something about the brand perception of AEW. And there's other less significant problems that are particular to the live events business for AEW. I think they're, they're spending Toronto on a, on a two-day rampage and dynamite in a, in a mid-tier venue. Um, they've done things like insisting on running in the now arena and Hoffman Estates in, a, in a, a location that's not convenient where they could have done better business uh, on that all out weekend, maybe. 
Um, and who knows what their momentum will be like when they reach other markets, including the UK, where, which they should be able to have sort of a tailwind there in terms of having a, a strong fan base there that has not been that has not been served with with live events yet. Um, but we don't know when they're going to make it to, to the United Kingdom. Um, so I'll stop there before I go any further. Any 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 thoughts or things to to add or question there? I think you touched on the first the first major one, which is what I would say would be that. So CM Punk, who I think we all kind of accept has been AEW's biggest singular business mover, is not advertised for these shows, and neither is Kenny Omega or the Young Bucks. So you're missing, if you combine the Young Bucks, as, if you consider the Young Bucks one act, you're missing three out of probably the six most prominent acts in the company off of these cards, which I think logically hurts. I think... One thing I'm interested in seeing is if the um, the trend of ticket buying is maybe a little different for AEW than it had been in the past. I think in the past we saw their trend has been selling almost all of their tickets right as they go on sale and then adding very few tickets kind of as the day approaches, um, obviously with the week advances. Now we can we can logically assume that they're going to draw significantly less because in the past they would sell more. I'm wondering if perhaps I don't think they're going. To, I still think they're going to be down from where they were before, but I wonder if the habits of the ticket buying public are a little bit different. I wonder if people are now like, okay, I don't have to buy my tickets right away. I can wait, maybe see what the card looks like, maybe see um, what my schedule is like in the weeks leading up to the event. I'm wondering if we're seeing more of a a trend in ticket sales similar to how WWE fans tend to buy tickets. WWE fans tend to, um, WWE set tends to sell or at least distribute a lot more tickets in the weeks leading up to a show and have maybe a weaker or lower percentage of, of first day ticket sales than AEW. I wonder if maybe that is going to play a factor. Um, but I'm curious to see if that is a potentially what, what I'm really curious to see what some of these weak advances end up looking like um especially in some of these markets like um chicago and boston and baltimore um where we have kind of a cons- uh, multiple examples of, of how they've drawn there i think it's time to kind of step back away from the repeat markets for a while you know especially a lot in the northeast and you know give philadelphia a break give boston a break give never you know, <laughs> you know, give them a break for a little bit. And really, honestly, you're starting in, in Seattle in January and really focus on the West Coast in the beginning of the year, especially the winter months. Um, you know, focus on the West Coast. I'd like to see more shows added. You know, we talked about Phoenix and, and you know, them going back to Salt Lake City and Denver. Like, that's what they should be focusing on in the beginning of 2023. Markets, they've only been to once or never. Because uh, clearly they've, I, they've, they've almost, I mean, they've, oversaturate themselves in the Northeast, it looks to be. And the reason for that is, I, I imagine it has something to do with keeping expenses low. I imagine the, the further out you go from from the Northeast, f- for logistical reasons, I would guess that the more expensive things get. And maybe that's at least part of the reason why they haven't gone to markets that they haven't visited at all yet, including the Bay Area, which is any of San Jose, San Francisco, Oakland, they haven't gone to Sacramento yet. They haven't gone to San Diego yet. They haven't gone to Phoenix yet. And you would think San Diego since since yeah. the pandemic. 
San Diego would be a no-brainer, too, with the influence of Lucha Libre on the shows, too. Like, I mean, the fact that they're not running San Diego, it's, it, you know, it's interesting. Well, they could they could also run, like, WWE runs all the time, El Paso, Laredo, um, Corpus Christi, these other border towns that they could mm-hmm. pro- potentially draw well. You could bring in someone uh, from AAA if you wanted to. Um, you have, I mean, you have Roosh, um, yeah. who is obviously one of the biggest draws in Mexico and was for a long time on the roster in addition to the Lucha brothers. I think, um, I don't know, but I think, I don't know if they run the Northeast too much. I think, I mean, I think just in my personal experience, they come to Boston about the same amount of time as WWE comes to Boston and, you know, WWE has two tours, but I don't necessarily think that like running Boston, running New York, running Philadelphia three or four times a year, um, is too much. Maybe it's different for AEW than it is for WWE, but, um, I think, but I do think they need to explore new markets. I think you look at, to, I mean, I think they really missed an opportunity to get in some of these, you know, Western and Prairie Canadian cities before WWE did, because you look at the business that WWE did in Winnipeg, the w, the business WWE did in Edmonton, some of their biggest crowds for television tapings this year. And a lot of that was probably because, yeah, WWE's doing better selling tickets, but they were also the first major wrestling shows those markets have had since the pandemic started. And I think AEW, if they do go into those markets, and I'm really surprised they haven't been to Winnipeg yet. It's such an easy show for them to run, in my opinion. Maybe they're getting frozen out of an arena, for all I know. But um, I think that they missed an opportunity to be first in those markets uh, for the kind of return to pro wrestling in those cities. WWE got them first, and WWE did huge business but those are other markets that you would probably want to explore um they have i don't know if kenny if kenny omega comes back to the company or, or when he comes back to the company they have plenty of theoretically canadian drawing talent they have chris jericho they have um kenny omega so i, I think those are markets that you need to explore in addition to some of the west coast markets that they've also ignored i mean they haven't been to montreal they haven't been to ottawa uh they haven't been – they're going to Toronto and that's it. They haven't been to any other of the major markets in Canada. So those are all other major markets that you can see them drawing very well in. So that's a, a quick look at what's, what's happening with AEW live events and I, we'll get into some TV ratings later. Um, and this is – to, to move to, a, to to WWE, this has now, now been two months. It's only two months now since July 22nd. Does anybody, anybody know what happened on July 22nd? I'm considering uh, for, for it to be a national holiday. Was that Vince? Uh, that that is the day that Vince McMahon yeah. resigned from all positions in WWE on a permanent basis. Whoa, 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 um, Brandon! He retired. He didn't resign. <laughs> I, I I asked and, and I was told that there was no there was essentially no difference between retirement and resignation. Uh, but yes, he re- he retired as the press release said. Um, so and and so and and for years I've been going on about Vince and how Vince is a detriment to creative and that how that does affect WWE economically despite this massive tailwind of media rights fees and it's a very hard argument to prove uh, beyond beyond doubt you can always say that well it doesn't really matter that's just you know the, the, the better creative would not draw any net gain in, in, in consumer interests that's plausible I don't believe that was ever the case but that's plausible um or that one of other responses to to 
criticism of, of Vince in his creative role is that, well, it's not just Vince. It's really more complicated than that. Maybe it's more of a systemic issue or, well, even if Vince is, is a detriment creatively, he's still a real positive when it comes to maybe other aspects of the business, dealing with their business partners and dealing with TV networks or something like that. Um, and here we are now two months into the post Vince era and W has not collapsed. It has not uh, been sold even. Um, and interest, I would, I would argue with, with some data here, interest has improved uh, consumer interest has if we look at uh, attendance, a reflection of attendance from, from WrestleTix, tickets distributed. This is broken down by quarter, so Q3, almost entirely in the post-Vince era, a little bit more than two-thirds in the post-Vince era, uh, and we have Raw doing better in this Q3 than the return to touring Q3. Uh, I have the, the, the bar chart here, which is probably the best illustration of that. 9,146 is the average tickets distributed for Raw. Compare that to the return to touring, which was buoyed by pent-up demand that we talked so much about. Uh, and you can see that reflected in what SmackDown did in that quarter, too. SmackDown was almost at that level, 8,600 compared to the 9,300 that it did. So this quarter for SmackDown is better than any of these three quarters in between. Uh, this quarter that just ended for Raw is better than these quarters in between and better than the return to touring quarter. Uh, Dynamite appears to be, be behaving just more normally where, where we see it had 6,900 in the return to touring quarter and then it's been hovering around 5,000 to 6,000 ever since for the average Dynamite tickets distributed. Um, that's, so we have not just Raw doing well, SmackDown doing well also. Um, and uh, we can talk about ratings in a moment. But I guess if we look at... Um, it, it, while that's happening, though, um, W did cancel five house shows that were... Uh, the, the cancellations happened in this quarter, I think. So Eugene, Oregon. Grand Perry, Alberta. Grand Forks. Elmira, New York. Prescott, Arizona. These all sound like wonderful vacation destinations. <laughs> but they, they had uh, house shows scheduled that were canceled, I have to think, because of weak advances. Um, so I think that's, that's an interesting contrast, you know. I, I, while, while TV attendance is doing so well for, w, for WE, for Raw and SmackDown, still you've got at least these small market house shows that are doing not well enough that they felt they had to cancel them, or at least it was cost-effective to do so. Um, somewhat, I think that's reflective in the wrestling business is more of a media business mm. ever more into the future. It's less of a live event business that it once was. Um, I'm surprised they didn't cut that out after the pandemic. Cause obviously all the big cities did well, but they took a while to go back to these small markets. Um, and so the, the, the TV events obviously are happening twice a week. House shows, um, are happening to what degree are they doing fewer house shows over this time so if we look at i don't know if, maybe i look at this by i guess i only have monthly counts here these are the count of events for all these different event types so i want to look at house shows how many house shows does w run and some of these are international some of these are north america but in september they ran eight which is less than they had run in in months before that where they had done 11 or 10 uh 9 10 15 we only have three somehow for february um 
but in the return to touring quarter, they, they didn't do that many house shows either back in July of last year, three, August five, September nine, uh, October only six. So they've picked it back up. Um, without pulling the data up, I'm pretty confident this is still a lot less, a lot fewer house shows than they had been doing before the pandemic. Um, which, which was even a cut-down schedule from what they had been doing when they were, say, in the early times of, of the brand split. Um, so they are running fewer house shows. And when they were in the pre-pandemic times, um, the operating income, which is a measure of profitability, while W has made tons of money from media revenues, uh, they've made lots of profitability and operating income from media revenues, including TV rights fees, including network-related revenue. Um, WWE has struggled in the pre-pandemic times to make the live events segment profitable. Live event segment has been at least a little bit profitable since the return of the touring. Um, but it's a, it's a segment that was not profitable in many WrestleMania quarters in the last several quarters before the pandemic. So I imagine that's part of what's motivating it. They probably feel that they, they were... What was probably happening is that in the pre-pandemic times where live events were struggling to be profitable, it was probably being dra dragged down by these small market live yeah. events, how it shows. So those are the, the events that we're seeing get canceled here that were probably projected to not be profitable based on the advances. So they figured, let's just cut them. And whatever we suffer, maybe as far as perhaps compromising our relationships with these venues, maybe it's not that big of a deal to them. That's a calculation that they've probably made. So wrestling becoming more of a, of a media business, less of a live events business. AEW, which is a fresh business as of 2019, doesn't do house shows. They've done like two that were just out of sort of the convenience because they were already doing TV tapings. Um, so house shows, events that you're not producing for media, it's, I mean, sort of in the, in the sports world, that's just unheard of, right? Like there is no analogy to like the NFL, baseball, basketball. They're not doing, everything is televised. If not, you know, if not nationally, then through a regional sports. Even the UFC, the UFC doesn't have like fight nights and just random places that aren't televised. <laughs> like, But this is where wrestling sort of begins to straddle this space between live sport and scripted entertainment. Certainly Cirque du Soleil is not on television everywhere, you know, and I don't know, blue man group and things like that, that come to mind. Um, so that's, that's happening there. Uh, we can look to the Royal rumble tickets in San Antonio. Those went on sale at the Alamo dome, uh, this past week, WrestleTix counts about eight, 18,000. I don't know if WrestleTix has, has counted this themselves, uh, or maybe this is, my, my calculation, I've talked to WrestleTix about this this week anyway. Um, the, the full configuration at with the way they have it set up right now looks like it could be about 40,000. I did scrape all of the ticket prices that I could get that I could see that were visible uh, on the ticket map, and it looked like an average ticket price of about 141 dollars, um, which gives a potential gate, not that they're going to sell this out, but a potential gate of 5.7 million dollars. If 18,000 have been moved already. That's that's about two and a half million dollars that they've moved already. For some context, what we've been talking about repeatedly lately is how AEW now has four one million dollar gates for their live events. This this alone would be a two and a half million dollar gate uh, just based on what they've moved already, which and it could go, it could 
perhaps double that. Um, Extreme Rules is... Yeah. Sorry, if I recall, I believe the Alamo Dome in San Antonio is like one of, if not the cheapest venues to rent of that size. Um, And so that's why it's kind of become a popular place for places like WWE. I think the TWA Dome in St. Louis is very similar, or the, the former TWA Dome in St. Louis... I forget what it's called now. It's called like America something mall. But does anybody use that for uh, like is there any sports team that uses that? No, there there's no major sports teams that use either of those domes, which I think attributes to them as kind of being cheaper to to rent than say the the um the field the stadium, the, the Raiders Spurs stadium. Don't play here, right? The Spurs don't. They built that stadium originally for the Spurs to play at, which sounds insane that they built it for like a seventy thousand seat stadium for a basketball team uh in the early nineties. But I think they don't have a football team. I think there's probably some minor league things that take place uh, there. But I know f- I, I feel like it's been reported. I don't know who told me. It's probably Dave. But that it's one of the cheapest venues of this size to rent, um, which makes sense because most giant domed stadiums have major tenants. Like, uh, and so some of the venues you see them like they've been to was Alliance Field in Las Vegas, which is where the Raiders play. Um is obviously much more expensive, I think, probably to rent than the Alamo Dome in San Antonio. Allegiant Stadium? In, in Allegiant Vegas. Stadium. Yes. Oh, yeah, I'm getting my, my stadiums confused. But uh, um, so I, I think that's why you see like this is it makes sense for them to do this because they can get they can have that stadium aesthetic. They can sell a lot of tickets. You know, they've already got a two point five million dollar gate. It looks like on estimate. Uh, months out out from the show taking place, they can you know they can sell. 30,000, 30, 40,000 tickets. I don't know how many they'll wind up with, but they clearly only have it at half the, the the venue is kind of opened up at the moment. They can do all those things and get the vibes of running a stadium show, but they're not paying, um, you know, what I would consider top dollar, um, which you would probably do if they were running at a marquee venue in a marquee market. I, I think top dollar is getting paid. I think he's not he's working for free. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> anything else there? I'll, I'll go to extreme rules. Um, in Philadelphia, this this coming Saturday, so before we record again for WrestleMania Radio, uh, Extreme Rules will have happened in Philadelphia. It's close to a sellout. Uh, tickets distributed according to WrestleTix is just over eleven thousand. Um, with no Roman Reigns on this card, at least as of yet, I don't. He may just may not be on this card. Um, Ronda Rousey's featured prominently in some of the marketing. She is wrestling Liv Morgan. Uh, Matt Riddle and Seth freaking Rollins is, uh, are they having a fight pit match? Do we have a, a special referee for that match? I've heard. Yeah, we do. Uh, we talked last week about celebrities and wrestling. Well, uh, UFC legend, Daniel Cormier is going to be the special guest referee for this, uh, fight pit match, uh, mm-hmm. between R- Riddle and Rollins and, uh, Cormier was somebody that's been rumored for years to be involved in pro wrestling. Never had. Um, I was trying He's to find. I was trying to find out. I was trying to see if Nick Khan ever represented him, uh, but he did not. Because I was trying to see where that connection really came from. But I know he is a fan I, of wrestling. So yeah. Sean Rossap likes to bring up one night when I was with Fightful in 2016. There was a UFC at, in Buffalo, um, and it was like days after WrestleMania that year, and like I. Talk, talk to him in, the, in like the scrum time and mm-hmm. and we I don't know I, I must have mentioned like the Wrestlemania gate doing 17.3 million dollars or something like that and you know he was he, he's, a, he's a big wrestling fan so it's not surprising to see him involved here I wouldn't be surprised Has to see he... him have a match or something 
Has he appeared on WWE television before? I don't think so. Yeah, I can't tell if this is just because, like you said, he's been rumored to be doing stuff. I'm sure there's been lines in The Observer that I've read that said there's talk about Daniel Cormier coming in for potentially a WrestleMania match or something like that. But um, I feel like he's made wrestling references. Publicly. Has he has he like appeared on commentary before? Like, I feel like he's been involved in some capacity at some point. Um, I don't chat, think he's ever been really on screen, but. Um, this Philadelphia show is really, really interesting. I mean, the, the ticket sales, I would say, are, are pretty strong um, for for what would be decisively a B pay-per-view. I wonder um, – I'm curious looking at, like, the future WWE advances, at least in the United States, and seeing if their ticket – if that kind of – we're starting to see a little bit of cool down from the original, like, selling out, you know, selling out Boston, selling out um, Madison Square Garden, you know, those huge attendances that they were drawing um, – right as soon as Triple H kind of took over. But this show seems to be, be still feeling with that momentum, despite the fact that this card doesn't feel like it's a an A-level card. Um, obviously, there's no Roman Reigns on it, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's likely going to be. But uh, it's still a really strong performance um, for WWE pay-per-views. I'm sure it's... I'd be interested in seeing if you like looked and looked at their... like the how well the B pay-per-views have drawn in WWE, how many of them are close to kind of like this 12,000 attendance mark? Um, we have, we know, so next is Survivor Series, which I think is debatable whether we consider it a, a B. Certainly traditionally, it's it's one of the... No, no, that's an A. No, that's an A. Yeah. In terms of pay-per-view say, bias, historically, though, it's it's performed like a B pay-per-view, but right, it's a but brand I think the, that, that has the a brand history. history. I'm talking about like now, I guess like last year or two. Um, well, like Survivor Series tickets didn't sell super well last year and they were running in new york city which theoretically should be their strongest market um and that was an early sign of how much better wwe's ticket sales were doing was that they sold out survivor series in boston this year they pretty much have sold it out like right away as opposed to last year if you remember the ticket sales were very slow uh in barclay at, at barclays and that should have been that shouldn't have been the case i mean you should have been selling much quicker in barclays i think under historical precedent so yeah but I would consider this show a huge success from a, a, a drawing standpoint. It'll be interesting to see if it um, maintains like buzz. Like it'll be interesting to see how it compares like Google trend wise to some of the previous WWE shows under the Triple H era. Um, Cause it doesn't have Roman Reigns. It doesn't feel like a hot show from a momentum standpoint. Uh, just kind of anecdotally. Yeah. Google trends. We, I have to wait until usually the third of the month to get the, the entire month that has recently ended. Up to this point, it's like up one percent year over year for as far as like the Q3 period, um, and for the for the months that were in Q3, it's it's about one percent year over year. So we're not seeing a big big jump there. I mean, Google Trends are are predictive of are usually aligned pretty well with consumer interests, but we're not seeing this huge jump. But we are seeing improved attendance, ticket sales. We are seeing uh, improved TV ratings to an extent. Um, so I think you know the the. While we're seeing all these things, um, uh, why why is this happening? To go back to, to my, my belaboring of, of, of Vince, I feel like I have a, a Vince-centric view of wrestling, which still his what he what he did is still affecting wrestling um, negatively. I would say in terms of all the creative habits that he's influenced on other people who have influence on on creative. Um, the poker chip is just one example that we won't get into here, but but that's one. Um, and now he's gone, and now we're seeing pretty immediate positive changes to 
ticket sales, TV ratings, two pretty important factors. Um, so I think that con- it's, it's just sort of proving that content matters. And here's one way to, to measure it, which is not the, the, the ideal way. I would want to have a wider sampling of, of audiences somehow, but this is the best way that I know, which is looking at cagematch.net event ratings. And SmackDown doesn't look particularly special. It is better than the prior three quarters, but it's not better than Q3 of last year. Q3 of last year averages 6.6 rating, event rating for SmackDown. It averages 6.2 this year. Raw, though, is the highest it's basically ever been. We can go back. What we have on the screen here is 2015 and forward, the average by quarter. We can go back further. The further back you go, the fewer votes there are. It starts to get to... to to the point where this is not a, a strong sample. Um, there's a, what we what we're looking at right now are events that are driven by probably somewhere between like 30 and 50 votes per event. Um, but anyway, raw for Q3, the Q3 that just ended, averaged a 7.3 event rating from people who rated it, which is higher than anything we have on the screen here from 2015 and forward. Um, that, regardless of how we compare it to to AEW, which we can. Um, that that is an improvement internally within you know within WWE perception. Um, for if, we're, if we do compare it to, to to AEW, Dynamite is averaging pretty consistently, with the exception of this Q2 2021 that's not memorable to me. That that did a 6.8, while everything else did somewhere in the sevens. Um, Rampage is down to a, a 6.2 in Q3, which is lower than any of the other quarters that it's that it's existed for. But uh, in Q3 for Dynamite 7.7, which is right in line with where it's been historically, um, I believe this is something that, that Tony Khan monitors. Um, so yeah, I think this shows that that content matters, and it always mattered, and Vince left a lot of money on the table. And I may or may not you know, like WWE product any better than I did before. Uh, the... The, the, the Bray Wyatt hype appears to have to have driven a rating based on the prelim that we saw come out last night. Um, the, the SmackDown rating looks like it's going to come in for the final at a, a normal level, not the high 2.5 million viewers that it did a week ago Friday, but more like, I think I'm projecting like 1.1, 1.2 million viewers for the final. So back to the normal level. And I don't know how to attribute that 2.5 million viewers rating, which is much higher than usual to anything other than the hype around this white rabbit stuff and this Bray Wyatt stuff. And that's supported by the information that we've got in quarter hours where the, yes, the quarters around 923 did better than many of the other quarters. Um, the, the, in the raw rating, the raw rating on Monday was very similar to, I think it would have had been since Monday Night Football started. The raw rating was slightly up in the demo, I think. Is that right? Um, but but it's it's been taking a similar hit since since we didn't see the dramatic jump like we saw the SmackDown rating last week. No, right, so, which would point to there was something about that SmackDown alone, independent of whatever was happening on Raw, right? That, that that's what you're saying. Yes, it seemed well. If you're, if we're going to indicate that, like specifically the nine twenty three. Bray Wyatt tease um, was what drove the rating then. And we haven't seen that reflected in any other WWE programming in addition to besides that one SmackDown. It didn't reflect well 
this week's SmackDown appears to be have been normal. Raw on Monday appeared to have been normal. We didn't see a similar spike except for that particular episode of SmackDown. And but SmackDown has been unusual in the sense that it hasn't benefited that much from I think the perception and change from Vince McMahon to Triple H than Raw has. I mean the Raw you you mentioned the cage match ratings for SmackDown seem to be relatively similar to as in the past, but the ratings are similar to SmackDown. They haven't seen this kind of bump uh that much in ratings as opposed to what we saw from Raw before Monday Night Football started. Yeah, I have a a part of the wrestling execution spreadsheet uh, that we that that is calculating exactly what the ratings difference is uh, in in the post Vince era versus the the same time of of the end of the Vince era, and we have what Raw is up in total viewership ten percent. It's up in the demo fourteen percent. SmackDown is up only five percent. Uh, SmackDown is up only nine percent in the demo. Uh, NXT and Raw are both doing similarly. They are similarly improved uh, since since Vince left. Um, yeah, and that goes back to, I think, my theory that I'm feeling more confident in as time goes on is that the general public still sees Raw as the primary flagship show in WWE and the show that you have to pay attention to the most. And SmackDown is still seen, I think, as a secondary show, despite over the last few years, WWE trying pretty hard to shift that narrative in that um that SmackDown is more important than Raw. SmackDown has Roman Reigns on it more regularly. SmackDown tends to get um, the the bigger crossover stars, if you want to say, you know, Logan Paul or Ronda Rousey's on SmackDown. And mm-hmm. um, the star power is not equally aligned between the two brands. Yet I feel like Raw, at least to the audience that seems to be coming back to the product with Triple H in charge, are those people are tuning into Raw and not necessarily SmackDown at the same rate. Yeah. So... And I, in, in, in over the years, we've seen Vince personally make the argument about about the vocal minority and how it's, it's a it's a an argument that he, he made on a on a W investor call in 2015 when when somebody brought up the the reaction to Roman Reigns at the Royal Rumble in 2015 because people had been tweeting cancel W Network, which was a you know a very important uh, streaming service, a very important business to 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 analysts and investors at that time especially um and then vince was being asked about it and and do you view that as something that's actually bad for w and vince's answer was basically no it's a vocal minority those those are people who, who were mad that the baby face didn't win and uh, I, I know those people are gonna be glued to the tv next week and i think that was obviously wrong in hindsight that's that's not that that is that would be a controversial view that's not something that's clearly undeniably uh you know, it, it's it's not something that couldn't be debated. But I think what we're seeing now is makes it more clear to me that that was the case. That Vince was leaving money on the table by booking a product that was for himself more so than it was for his market or his potential market. Um, and we're seeing that the content wasn't as good as it could have been. And I think it, it's not just like, and I don't think like Triple H is is this magician. I think he's competent. You know, he's he's good at at, at hit the position that he's now in with his new title, the chief content officer. Um, I, I don't think he's like this, this amazing genius who's just somehow able to do the impossible. He's doing a, a good, competent job. And Vince wasn't doing a good, competent job. It's about, that- Brandon, it's about trust. It's a trust that the fan base, that the viewer and the fan base that are watching the show lost trust in that when, when Vince McMahon was in charge, that the product would be good in that things would happen on the show that they would find enjoyable and entertaining. Um, 
once we've gotten the shift from Triple H to Vince McMahon, even if the product has been exactly the same, and it hasn't been exactly the same, but even if it exact was exactly the same, even if Vince McMahon was ghostwriting these episodes of, of Raw and sending them and we we're pretending that Triple H was running the show, but it was really Vince McMahon, which I don't believe is happening, and I have no evidence to suggest that, so I'm definitely not reporting that. But even if that was happening, the optics change, I think, of just Triple H being a person that a certain segment of wrestling fans, a lot of the, the, the same fans who lost faith in Vince McMahon, do trust and do think that he is going to present an entertaining product and will book things the, the way that fans would find enjoyable, that's a big shift. I was kind. Of, I kind of thought that it would be harder to rebuild this trust in the fan base. I think years and years of Vince's booking had eroded that. Um, I was wrong. There's been a lot. There's been a huge shift. I think tonally, not just reflected in more people tuning into the shows, but just if you go in in, in cage match ratings. But if you just go online, I feel like the attitude towards WWE from a lot of people who maybe previously were more cynical about it are is much more positive with Triple H in charge because they have confidence and trust that Triple H is going to book a solid product. And that just didn't exist with Vince McMahon. It seemed like he had kind of reached uh, the end of his capacity to do that. And we were going to drift off uh, further and further away as he continued to kind of, you know, age out of being an entertaining uh, uh, writer and, and, and someone that understood his own fan base. And I think so. I think it's all comes down to trust and faith in who is making those decisions. And I think the, the WWE fan base has responded well to Triple H being the guy in charge and having a lot of confidence in Triple H. Yeah. And I think there is, well, there was like this, this sort of false vocal minority that wasn't really reflecting the, t- the taste or what the, the market would demand. In Vince's view, there was this group of people who were just misleading about what, what, what the market would really accept or want. I think there's, not everybody is convinced clearly and not everybody is, you know, ready to, to, to even sample WWE again. But some people are as evidenced by the improvement in ticket sales and as evidenced by the improvement in, in TV ratings. Um, and I think, think there's still like a, there's, there's all different media, right? And there's, there's been like Malachi Black talking about media and whatnot. And I don't ever want to paint wrestling media with, with one brush, but there's, there's clearly like a media that is scared to death to say anything critical about Vince and to view recent months events as wow, Triple H is, is great. Isn't he amazing? Wow. And what, and I don't know how this, how this happened or, you know, wow, it's, you know, Vince is the legend and, and, and Triple H is just, wow, he's really special rather than Vince was terrible at his, at his head of creative job. And he should have been out of it years ago. And finally, finally there's somebody who's a lot more competent and who's, whose performance is correlating with the improvement of consumer metrics. Um, the, the biggest fan base, the biggest market, if you're in wrestling media, the biggest market for your work is WWE fans. They're, that, they're the numerous, the most numerous fan base. So if you were running a business, you, it, it kind of behooves you to cater towards people who enjoy WWE. Um, and that might scare people away from critical comments about WWE uh, in any way, shape, or form. Um, even when you know, even when Vince was in charge, and people would be critical, you'd see people avoid blaming Vince. They would say creative needs to improve, or the writers, or these people who are kind of faceless and nameless, and nobody has any particular attachment towards them. It, Brandon, you were always very open about saying Vince is the issue here. 
But a lot of people weren't. A lot of people wanted to blame, you know, oh, they've got too many Hollywood writers back there or, you know, maybe someone like Bruce Pritchard or someone like that. But they would always stay away from uh, knocking Vince because Vince is Vince is people, some people's grandparents and people think Vince is, is you know, a beloved family member. Um and we're afraid to criticize him. And I think that's reflected because the media, certain segments of the media are afraid of alienating that WWE fan base. And it also behooves them if they're going to, if you're covering WWE news and you're doing reviews for Raw and SmackDown and you're, you know, live tweeting coverage and this is the basis of your, your media work, it behooves you to make it seem like the thing that you're covering is fun and exciting and innovative and cool. It, it, if you're because you're, you're you're in, involved in the selling of that product because your product is getting people engaged with it and people don't want to engage with a product that's insulting so there's it behooves people to represent it as something that's interesting and exciting even if oftentimes it wasn't um otherwise we're all just ryan satin at ronda you know the, when ronda rousey appeared at the royal rumble and making fake faces about how excited we are and like i, I i'm not as prepared to like question everybody's sincerity about whether or not they really believe the things that they are. No, people really, uh, yeah, it's, it's not as, I I don't want to come across as something I've learned recently really with triple H taking over is that there are a lot more people are a lot more sincere about this than I maybe previously give them credit for that. I was just assuming that people were cynically abiding by the WWE company line because they were afraid to alienate the WWE fan base. But a lot of people also genuinely in media generally have, tremendous sympathy towards WWE and want WWE to be better so bad that they're willing to look at it with a very much optimistic perspective as opposed to perhaps a more realistic based cynicism that uh, I've certainly developed over the years and I'm sure other people that have talked about this online have. Right. Let me, let me f- finish this point because I'm going I'm to burn WWE fans and, and now I'm going to burn AEW fans too. So there's, there's, there's that. There's all these people for a long time who have been afraid and still are afraid. I don't know if afraid is the right word, but they don't. They don't see what I, I, I believe to be the truth, that, that Vince was the central problem. And it all unraveled from him and his leadership, at least on the creative side. I don't know as much about what he was like as a corporate manager, but I can see the output of his television on, on, on television every week. Um, we know a little bit what it was like for him as a corporate manager. He signed a lot of NDAs and then had to resign. Yes. Um, but th- so there's, so there's that. And then, and then there's what I would perceive to be the AW hardcores who don't, who, who, I think there's people who are still rooting for, who are rooting for AW or WWE as if they are wrestlers or as if they are sports teams who want to see AW succeed from a business perspective and it's somewhat zero sum in their view with WWE, which to a degree, yes, they are. They definitely are competing. Um, and those people have, and, and so this is sort of related to, to, to the error of Vince too, in that like there's, there's a, a unwillingness to accept that, that W has improved in some real way. If through perception only, um, it doesn't matter whether or not I'm a fan of the fiend to, to acknowledge that, the fiend appeared to, to to have pulled a rating on on two Fridays ago, um, and you know the the the, the greatest sin that that every wrestling I don't know if it's the greatest but the 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 sin the temptation of every wrestling promoter and pundit, including me, my with my love example for all Japan in the nineties, is that the we we all make the argument that the 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 type of product 
that would appeal to the widest possible market oh, just accidentally, incidentally happens to be the, the, the kind of product that I would like best. Vince has made that error, and, and every pundit has made that error, and every wrestling promoter in some way, I would argue, you could find making that error to some degree, including Tony Khan as well. Um, and in, in the case of what I'll call the AEW hardcores, uh, can you blame them for being so distrustful of WWE? I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily blame them. They've been numbed by decades of Vince McMahon's abysmal creative, uh, and they've been numbed by the, the sort of everybody pretending that the Emperor is really wearing these beautiful clothes, and nobody wants to say a critical word about him. And, uh, and, and despite all of these you know, sexual misconduct allegations and despite consecutive years of declining consumer metrics and poor content, um, it feels deeply like this nihilistic product that lives in a nihilistic creative universe where the characters live in the lives and it feels like this nihilistic universe in which the business lives and that's all it's changing somewhat and it's changed since july 22nd and it's changed a lot of things for for everybody in the industry and it's changed a lot for AEW uh to prove that that content matters and that creative leadership really does matter and it really was to some degree just as simple as that um all right. And I, here's, here's a big, bigger, broader investor question. Um, do the investors get that? I would argue that the, the, this almost, I'm almost making a straw, man, but this, this prototypical AW hardcore who's still skeptical, you know, fair, fairly enough, skeptical of, of WWE. Uh, I don't think they fully grasp what's happening in the business. Uh, in the way that I'm just describing it. Does the WWE investor fully grasp it? This, this stock price went up, which is, it's been, been climbing gradually over the last, this is year to date that we're looking at right now, while the rest of the stock market has, is down by, I think we have it here, uh, is down by 25%, 33%, 21%, depending on which index you look at. W stock price is up 40% year to date. In any case, uh, since July, which we can, I'll use my laser pointer here, here's July where it's down to like in the low 60s. And since that point, it's grown now. We're up to seventy dollars. It's been up, up higher in, in many you know, recent months, but it's but it's up from where it was. I guess this is late June, so the middle of July is, is somewhere over here. In any case, the stock price is, is up from that time, from the time that Vince resigned. Why? Well, probably because a lot of people speculated that Vince is gone, and and, and like I, I sympathize with this. Vince is gone, so now the biggest obstacle in the way of WB selling to a larger company thus driving the market capital up. Now that that's, that's out of the way, maybe that's going to happen. Maybe the, the sale is going to happen. The sale has not happened immediately. I see no reason to believe that the sale is going to happen imminently. Um, but what, what matters here, what should matter to the price of this company, the price of the stock, is the quality of the content and the extent to which that determines their financial out- outcome, such as... Uh, Yes, ticket sales matter somewhat. Yes, merchandise sales matter somewhat. But what really matters, of course, is, is the media rights fees. And the TV ratings are improving, and maybe they'll continue to improve. We'll see. And if those continue to improve, U.S. deals are coming up for renegotiation, and they might finalize that by the spring. Are they going to be able to make a better deal because of their better performance, better brand perception, whatever it might be, because of, by God, they've got content that doesn't suck as bad as it used to? Um, maybe. And I don't think the investment community gets that. Uh, Do you think so investment maybe that makes this stock price even more underpriced than it would be otherwise. Do you think the investment community has, now that Vince is gone, has more confidence in Nick Khan having maybe more unilateral control over 
WWE's business and isn't dealing necessarily with having to work under Vince. He's more in control. I guess he's working, you know, under Stephanie and the board of directors and Triple H is involved in some capacity. But it feels like Nick Khan wields more power without Vince than he did before. And does that – I think the presence of Nick Khan in WWE from a corporate perspective has made the company uh, seem more uh, po- – companies is seen more positively, positively in the investment community. Do you think that that could potentially be a factor in the sense that now we're seeing Nick Khan fully with both hands on the wheel um, and what kind of business moves he can make? I think it's really I, interesting that uh, – yeah, that's, like that's the point I'll save for later. I think the the investment community really, really trusts and is really impressed with Nick Khan. I don't think that they were like significant. I don't think they like significantly trusted him more than they trusted Vince. Okay. Wrongly so. Um, I think. I think there there's in the in the investment community. This is my perception, speculation, I guess, that they viewed Vince as this magical founder that they were in awe of and. Wow, he he built a really really successful business. So he must get it. He must know. Even though perhaps for the last twenty years, at least creatively, he did not. Um, and well, when, 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 let me finish this point. Yeah. When, when they had Barrios and Wilson, I, I I don't I don't see them as 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 leaders who the investment community trusted as much and were as impressed as much as they are impressed with Nick Khan, especially in this situation where the. The big bulk of the value comes from negotiating TV rights, which he has a proven track record of success with. The, yeah, that was just going to be my point. Like Vince leaving, what was the real fear? I mean, they're, they were on track to get a historic TV rights deal no matter that what. He even, gets this business in a way it, that nobody else can. Yeah, but even if the ratings, even if the ratings dropped, right? Even if they were, you know, just at a million for Raw and SmackDown was 1.5, they're still probably getting a pretty large increase. So there really wasn't any true fear. I don't think if you logistically look at it with Vince leaving as an investor. I think the argument is the argument that we see in those risk risk factors around Vincent K. McMahon. And if we lose his services, he's our head of creative. And there's other things too. Maybe that, that, uh, that are connected to other, other duties that he did with WWE. But um, I think that's that's the argument that if you lose this founder and his leadership, I think it was just it was, and that's an, an argument that WWE itself made. So, yeah. but I think to 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 degree that that the investment community internalized that, and we're, and and by the way, we're we're articulating an investment community as as if it's, I think the the what ultimately drives the stock price is financial institutions deference to stock analysts who write their stock analyst reports who who place price targets at such and such and they they write a justification about why um so that that that's what it is it's it's certainly not media wrestling media punditry and things like that um it's not wrestlenomics what what we do doesn't move the stock price as far as i know mm-hmm. uh so it's 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 in some ways a superficial analysis of the company, I would say, compared to my beliefs. In in other ways, though, there are things definitely that the wrestling media overemphasizes. At least, if if the concern, if the conversation is about the the price of the, of the company and the price of the stock, you know, the creative matters somewhat, but it but it, but it's very nuanced, which hopefully we're getting across here. Anyway, now we're an hour in. 
Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and and that, that that topic was about an hour. So. <laughs> All right, let me let me let me make this this point quickly. I know I've got a lot of slides here, but hopefully we can do this quickly. Um, as far as W and AEW, which will be of of a particular interest, I think to to a lot of people listening, right? The comparison between W and AEW really gets people fired up, and and it's it's a it's a fascinating story, right? Um, I think what will tell you about the momentum of of W and AEW going forward is watch the flow of talent. I think that's told us the story before. Um, to be clear. I think up until this summer, the momentum, these companies are, are vastly different sizes, right? To be clear, W makes like 10 times the revenue that AEW does. However, the momentum was in the favor of AEW. The momentum was either neutral or negative towards WB, especially if we're talking like 2016 and forward. In any case, if you watch the, the flow of talent, I think that's pretty consistent with how that momentum God, what do we mean by momentum? We'll, to, to, we'll, we'll you know, forego unpacking that right now. But the momentum follows the flow of talent. Historical examples. In the mid-90s, talent left the WF, a lot of top, top talent did, left the WF to go to WCW, including Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, Ric Flair, Roddy Piper. They were in the WF in the early 90s. They went to WCW. In the mid-90s, in the mid-90s, WCW's business improved, while WS business was disimproving or stagnant um, in a time where consumer interest was the, you know, largely what drove the businesses of these, of these companies. And then in the late 90s, we saw WF become the hottest company that's ever really existed in the history of the wrestling business, and the talent flowed the other way, including the big show Paul White, big nasty as he was known for a week or two. Chris Jericho moved from WCW to, to WF. The radicals, including Perry Saturn, Eddie Guerrero, Chris Benoit, Dean Malenko, moved from WCW the WF, consistent with the timing of the change in momentum from WCW to the WF. Up until recently, we've seen a lot of talent flow from WB, who left ostensibly the most powerful wrestling company in the history of the wrestling business, who have the largest platforms, who can afford to pay you the most money. We saw a lot of wrestlers leave WB to go to, to, go to AEW right up until very recently. And, and who knows if it'll stop. I'm not necessarily predicting the future here. But we saw people including, uh, I don't know if CM Punk counts, but John Moxley, Chris Jericho, uh, Brian Danielson, Paul White, Malachi Black, Andrade, um, what's Rusev, Miro, uh, Brody Lee, Matt Hardy, Jeff Hardy. The list goes on and on. We've also seen uh, Kyle O'Reilly and Paige most recently. This is, a, this is actually... A slide that we're looking at right now is a slide from like December last year. So this is almost a year old yeah. slide, and I changed it a little bit. Um, but we we thought that maybe we would see Johnny Gargano go to W to AEW. We thought maybe we would see Kevin Owens, maybe Sami Zayn. None of this materialized. Uh, Dakota Kai, Candice LeRae, maybe they would they would go. They didn't. Um, I have more to say about that. We'll, we'll hold off. Um, and now maybe are we going to see the movement of talent from? AW to WWE. That's something that I'm saying here. Keep your eye on. And we've seen one example of that, and I'm sure everybody knows this, which is Cody Rhodes going from WWE, I'm sorry, going from AW to WWE. Um, and I think there's a lot of wrestlers who you could imagine going from, I mean, any, anybody could go from AW to WWE when their contracts are up, but 
what there's a lot of questions around what's going to happen here with Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks. What are their relationships like with management at AEW? Are they going to could they possibly whenever their contracts are up? And by the way, for anybody who's on the, the screen here, I don't know anybody's the status of anybody's contract here, but eventually everybody's contract expires and they have to renegotiate. If if Kenny and the Bucks left AEW, I think that would be whatever for whatever it would mean to AEW's ability to draw consumer ticket sales, merchandise, TV ratings, etc. I think it would be a brand blow to AEW to have the two the the to have Kenny and the Young Bucks who are most associated with the elite brand, which you named your company after, for them to leave uh, AEW and to go to W, I think would be a big brand blow. And there's others. Obviously, too, that come to mind in terms of, I think, being, being talent who are key to AEW's future, who are could be perceived as homegrown, AEW-grown talents, including MJF, Britt Baker, Daniel Garcia, Jay Cargill, Ricky Starks, who could be really important figures for AEW's future that I think it is really important that they hold on to. Um, yeah, any, th- any thoughts about that? I think uh, something that's interesting... Uh, to this generation of wrestlers compared to previous generations of wrestlers is the interest in performing and not as strong of an interest in money uh, relative to previous generations of wrestlers who would go from WWF to WCW and vice versa. Uh, I was reading, you know, it's funny. I was reading the the back uh, issue of the observer that came out today, which was going over 2005 hall of fame and they were talking about Triple H uh, and Triple H's early career in WWF and how he had uh, Kurt Hennig as like his his assistant, his manager kind of personality. And it mentioned that Kurt Hennig was collecting his Lloyd's in London insurance policy. So he couldn't wrestle because, of course, he had a career ending injury that prevented him from wrestling, which allowed him to collect money. And it reminded me that there was this whole generation of wrestlers who were happy to never wrestle again in theory <laughs> and col- and just collect their money from their insurance policy and how different that is today in the sense that all of these wrestlers want to make money but they also want to perform and they also want to feel valued and they also want to be put in a position where they feel like they can be a star and they can main event and things like that which is different than in previous eras and i think Whoever is going to be, I think both Tony Khan and WWE are capable of making very competitive offers for talent that they want. Um, And I think a lot of the interest, I think, in in talent moving back and forth is going to come down to your ability to be a star and your ability to be pushed and your ability to enjoy performing in front of uh, the audience that you're going to be working in front of. I think uh, that was a big motivation for a lot of people leaving WWE and going to AEW was not necessarily the chance to make more money, but the chance to be presented like a star and have good matches and not be subjected to Vince McMahon's creative vision. Now that the era has shifted and Triple H is in charge there, I think people are more optimistic about WWE as a, as a landing spot. Um, and so I think that you will see the flow back in talent more because people are less apprehensive about going to a WWE um, now that Vince McMahon isn't there. Uh, I think um, it's very interesting. I think the people that Triple H has – Triple H has wanted to bring back people to WWE since he's taken charge of the company. But a lot of the people that he's brought back have been people who – there didn't seem to be a ton of interest outside of WWE. It didn't seem like AEW was particularly interested in someone like Karrion Cross. Didn't seem to be interested in Dexter Loomis. Didn't seem to be interested in 
top Johnny dollar. Gargano. Johnny Gargano. I mean, we can. I don't. We don't know the specifics of that ones, but I like. I feel confident saying there wasn't a ton of interest in top dollar in AEW. Um, but so 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 but so he's brought back people, but I feel like with the exception of really of Gargano, he hasn't brought back necessarily the biggest stars available to to him, and I think um, they've perhaps tried to do that but haven't been successful so far. And I do think that there might be some people who are familiar with working with Triple H and are in AEW now and are looking at Dexter Loomis coming up and being on Raw regularly and and Top Dollar being on SmackDown. And they're thinking, man, those guys are getting pushes. What can happen to me if I go back over there? And I think that is a motivating factor as well, in addition to the fact that WWE can pay a lot of money. Um, I'm I'm gonna pay attention closely to Sasha Banks situation because that really shows you. I think it's gonna be a big momentum thing. Does she go back to WWE or does AEW maybe actually get one up? I would be very very yeah. shocked if she went to AEW. Um, I guess we can, I, I can add this. Like we yeah in in the next few years we may be in this. There's you know to be to be crude there, there may be two two possible outcomes we may just see sort of this competitive back and forth which i think is what mo- most people are are imagining and expecting that yeah the people's contracts will come up and that's great for business and that's well it's great for wrestlers and there's going to be you know bidding between companies for for certain talent um and maybe the you know some people will go one way and some people will go the other way um what i think if i were WWE, i would want to create and this is why like cody not being buried right away was very important which credit to vince for not 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 screwing that up uh uh thank you vince um that what if if i were advising wb i would tell them it's really important to create a perception that for aw talent that if you come here a we will treat you well you will be you'll be creatively fulfilled um and it's, I think it's really important for them to create a perception that that this is the place where, yeah, maybe you can do do good things there, but if you want to really do things at the next level, we th- this is this is where you upgrade. This is the promotion that you get promoted to. Um, you can do cer- things at a certain level on AEW, but if you really want to do them at the highest level and be creatively satisfied while doing them, you, you need can only to, main event WrestleMania. And, you can only main event WrestleMania in one company. And if that becomes the perception, if that's just sort of like a foregone assumption of, of, of talent and of fans, that's that's a big deal, you know. Um, oh, it's certainly already it certainly already is the perception to a lot well, of fans. I don't know if I'm articulating what I'm what I'm trying to say. That, but I mean, like, so right now, up at least until July 22nd, yeah, you can go up, up here on the on the biggest stage, and you can be in the stadiums, and you can be in front of the biggest TV audiences. Um, but it's not. If I were a wrestler in this situation, it's not creatively fulfilling. I don't feel like there's it's anything that even approaches a meritocracy in terms of there's there I, I can perform well. It doesn't really matter if I perform well. It's, it sort of does, but not but not really. It doesn't really matter if I'm talented or if it doesn't really matter if I'm an effective professional wrestler because Vince is going to book to his to his biases to his liking. Um, so whether or not I'm really excellent at my job doesn't matter as much as some other factors that may as well be arbitrary. Um, is it mainly creative, creative fulfillment that I'm talking about then? I, I guess that's a big piece of it. Um, it feels to me, I guess, like, or I guess I, I assume that a lot of fans view 
despite their vast difference in the sizes of their business, I feel a lot of fans view WWE and AEW as very comparable profiles, if that makes sense. And there's an opportunity, I think, for WWE to to make that not the case, to make to make it more clear that 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 WWE is by by a a definitive margin the the leader in in pro wrestling. Which, like, again, I don't know if I'm articulating what I'm trying to say here. But clearly, in ways it is, but in many ways, to some fans and to some ways, me, it, they do feel like two major leagues. But do you think like talent would be fan perception in the aspect of they do steal away like the Bucks and Kenny and they go over to WWE, then it just shows, okay, yeah, WWE is on a different level than AEW. If they go on to do, if they go on to, it's, it's, it's so hard to talk specifically about this. If they go on to have great success, whatever that means, and, and if they move from AEW to WWE and they go on to become bigger stars in, in culture and, Whatever that means in in wrestling culture, they become bigger stars there. Uh, maybe yes. I think. Anyway. Um, I mean, Kenny and the Bucks, I think, are very specific because they have a certain identity with AEW in a way that yes. most of the AEW roster doesn't have. Almost anybody else on the roster could move to WWE from AEW, and it would be viewed in in one way. It would be oh, WWE's being aggressive and getting talent. If they lost Kenny and the Bucks. I think the impression would be that AEW is a very different promotion than when it originally started and that they have lost some form of soul that they had at the beginning of the promotion, which would be not not good for the perception of the company, I think. Yeah, I agree. It would, ple- it would please a small segment of people if Kenny and the Bucks were no longer in AEW, but I think for most fans, they would see that as a negative. Um, okay. I have some, some slides on TV ratings, but I don't think it, it adds much at this point. Um, okay. Uh, we have super chats still to do. Yes. But, yes. but before then, let's, uh, should we do this first or do super chats first? Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to decide to do, do, do this other thing first. Um, so let me see if I can get this on the screen window. Uh, where is it? Here it is. Okay. Share. Here we go. Um, are you ready? Yes. <laughs> yep. We are going to play a game that some people call WrestleNomics Jeopardy. Um, the first time ever that we've done WrestleNomics Jeopardy here with, with Jesse. Um, in the past, this has been a, a solitary event for, for Gullo alone. Today, though, they will have competitive jeopardy um the rules are as follows just blurt out the que- the, the the answer oh there's always ambiguity when you ambiguity when you talk about wrestling Bl- blurt out your responses as quickly as possible and whoever says it first uh we will we will call the you know the winner of that point um so we're just gonna do this in order the first category is the law and the clue these these are written in, in jeopardy answer form the clue is this wrestler's tattoos were at the center of a lawsuit involving 2k sports that the jury came to a verdict on in september 2022 who is randy orton i, I heard gullo first no he uh, was first so so we have we have one for gullo okay international television is next law category is over with now the rest are international television not the rest but the, the following 
with the exception of Brazil. AEW's programs will no longer be seen throughout Latin America on this network, effective September 30th, 2020. What is the Space Channel? I heard Jesse first. One to we one. have to wait for you to finish, yeah. correct? I, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. Let's, establish, yeah. let's establish that. I have to finish saying the last word of the clue. <laughs> okay. Uh, next is also international television. In March 2022, WWE pulled its programming from the network called Match in this country. No one knows. No one knows. What, Nobody's going to guess. What is Australia? You, uh, you don't lose points for, for guessing, but you can yes. only guess once. Let's say that. Australia what? is, is Gull's guess. That's incorrect. Jesse, do you have a guess? What is Spain? No, Russia is the correct response. Russia. Okay. Uh, that is, that is the end Matchka. of the international television category. Now, all the rest of the clues are in the category <laughs> Enochiaism. Okay. New, uh, Antonio Inoki beat this Canadian strongman in a 1977 match in a New Japan ring that appeared to turn to a shoot when he refused to sell. Who was the great the Antonio? Great Antonio. I got Golo on that one. Uh, okay. Two to one, Golo in the lead. Next. New Japan's first Tokyo Dome show in 1989 was main evented by Antonio Inoki losing to this judo player from the Soviet Union. Who is Shuta Chakoshvili? Holy crap. I did not expect it. I was sure nobody's going to get this one. Jesse gets it. Tied I, two I, so, so if you read, I, I said I wrote an Antonio Inoki article. They'll be up on Voices okay. of Wrestling. And we get into okay. old Shuta. Yes. Okay. He's actually Georgian. It was part of the Soviet Union. I said Soviet Union. Yeah. I, I did debate yes, on how to write. part of so the like, Soviet Union. I, I'm not going to call him Russian. I did look up his Wikipedia. So I was like, so from the Soviet Union. Um, the former Soviet Union. Okay. Next. At Enoki Bombaye on New Year's Eve in 2001, hot off winning the G1 Climax the prior summer, Yuji Nagata was quickly knocked out by this Croatian kickboxer. Who is Mirko Krokop? Mirko That's Krokop. what I was going to guess. Yeah, but Correct. I wasn't sure. Three to two in favor of Jesse now. Jesse in the lead. Next. At Enoki Bombaye on New Year's Eve in 2002, Yuji Nagata was quickly defeated by this Russian Sambo fighter. I have two guesses, but I'm going to go with who is Vladimir Kozlov? That is incorrect. Uh, who is Oleg Targatov? No! Is who Pokemon? is Fedor Emelianenko? Uh, of course. <laughs> Put him against like the two greatest fighters in the world at the time. Anyway, uh... We're not done yet. New Japan's Manabu Nakanishi failed to prove pro wrestling was the strongest when he got dropped in a K-1 fight with this New Zealander. Who is Mark Hunt? No. Ah, fuck, really? I was really confident. Is he from New Zealand? Yeah. Yeah, I can't think of a New Zealand uh, K-1 fighter. It's obscure. It's Toa Paul Kingi. And uh, that is it. Uh, The winner is Jesse. Three to two. It was closer Thank than God I, I thought. I'll take it. <laughs> Thank God I wrote that uh, Antonio Inoki article because I wouldn't have gotten. I might have gotten the Krokop one, but I definitely wouldn't have gotten the the Shuta Choco Shvelli because um, there's the guy. What's his name? Is uh, uh, Hashimo- ha- Hashimoto? The uh, Sh- Shin- Shinya Hashimoto. Yeah, he's no, he's not Shinya Hashimoto. There was the guy who was <laughs> IWGP. There was a guy who was IWGP champion that was also yeah. from the Soviet Union wrestler. I, his name's uh. Russell? Like Salma, Salma Hashmid, Hashmikov. Hashmikov. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's who I would have guessed if, but I happened to, to come across the, uh, the first Tokyo Dome main event, uh, okay. match yesterday. Okay. Okay. Jesse wins pride. He does, not, not, not the, not the company pride. I don't think anybody wants that anymore, but you, you, you win, no. you win, uh, the, the Plus I wanted an pride. investigation. No. Yes. <laughs> the, uh, you'll be under investigation by the FBI soon. Um, we have, right. we have super chats. Super chat time. Chat yes, yeah, we do. Uh, we will start with uh, Primo Cologne. SmackDown's oh, uh, preliminary is a sample. Say hi to your dad for us. <laughs> but but if the final is a two one point one million, sorry, it's a big drop from two point five million. Do you think spoiler TV is a little off since the prelim uh, took a while to arrive? I have not seen the number from spoiler TV. I had to to ask someone who actually knows what the number is, and the number, the prelim number is 2.076. I tweeted it last night. That's the prelim viewership. My my usual formula. It's been about 6% lately, but if you know you go beyond the last several weeks, the difference is usually an increase of, of about 5.2-5.3%. That would put it at about whatever I tweeted last night, 2.1. Um I guess the the answer to the to this question is I don't I don't think it's relevant what what spoiler TV did or didn't report TV rating. So, so the so the reason why I had to ask Ron about this because TV series finale. I haven't. I don't know if, if spoiler. I could look because I think I have the window open. TV ser- series finale did report a number, and I tried to confirm it, and it was incorrect. Anyway, we'll see what happens on Monday. Um, do you think? Um, what do you think about the the theory that they teased this Bray Wyatt thing at, at uh, for nine twenty three? And all it ended up being was kind of another clue, which was basically just to watch. Okay, Raw. Spoiler TV does have the number, which is which matches what I heard it was, um, and I think it's correct. Uh, did say, say the end of your question again, Jesse? So, what do you think about the the idea that they WWE teased that something was going to happen at nine twenty three on this SmackDown show, and all it basically ended up being was a, another teaser for to watch Raw on Monday? Do you think that a lot of those people? Like tuned in, expecting to see something really big happen, and then it ended up kind of they being false advertised, and they burnt out the town. Um, yes, that's basically. I think what that I'm makes asking. logical sense, but I don't think economics behave logically always. Because um, I would think, I think that people would keep tuning in to see the next clue or the next tease if that's really what's drawing the viewership. But where they immediately just oh, there's no Bray Wyatt, not watching until he shows up, and and now the the subsequent teases don't have any real impact on, on viewership. I know we're only we only have two real examples since I, that I, happened. Point to that. I I would guess that a lot of the increase in viewership last week had to do with people expecting Bray Wyatt to debut, or at least something more to happen. And nothing more really happened, maybe other than additional clues. So it wasn't enough to make people tune in again. Now, if if Bray Wyatt had debuted, I don't know that the viewership is that different. This this past right that people are into the debut, but not necessarily into the fall. I mean. I think I think that I was when they did the huge rating on Friday on Friday and Smackdown, I started to think that perhaps they had really found something here with these clues and with generating kind of organic hype online um, as absurd as some of it can be and that they were really hit on something. And now it seems like they really just were people were really excited to see someone debut, but aren't necessarily into the hunt the way that I previously thought, at least in, in a wide enough marge, uh, audience. I think there's still space for the actual return of Bray Wyatt to oh, for sure. pop something. And how long are they going to wait for that? I don't know. 
Our next uh, super chat uh, is from MJ Singh and tribalism in wrestling. Uh, we heard MJF talk about that a lot uh, on the Errol or Hawani uh, interview. So, I, th- I think uh, wrestling in so many ways, which I think we briefly mentioned earlier, in so many ways is it just overlaps all these different forms of media and entertainment and sport. And I don't know if I want to compare it and say how it was different from the Monday Night War era or the eighties or whatever. Clearly there were fans who favored one company over the other, but I think there is on social media and not much probably beyond that. (laughs) There is this, there are people who are rooting for W or rooting for AEW like they are sports teams. And there are people who who support talent like they are sports teams just as well. And there's, you know, there's, there's, there's some deep reasons for that. I mean, I understand like W fans, I think are often people who are really enthusiastic about the notion that, that W is going to crush AEW are probably, I would guess this is a hypothesis. They tend to be younger, I bet. And I, but they, they tend to have not experienced as much different wrestling other than WWE. And I disagree with and they well, let me finish the point. And and they view WWE as like this this big brand, and, and anything else coming up to like to compete with it sort sort of spoils that purity of having this this big stage. So it soothes them to see AEW perceptibly fail. That's a story. I think I think part of them are. I think there's obviously young fans that believe that. I think there are a lot of older fans that have spent the mm-hmm. you know forty plus years of their lives under watching Vince McMahon's product and are very attached to those periods in their childhood. Um, I think that there's, and this is true for everyone in society, that there are segments of people who are afraid of different things, afraid of new things that are different than what their accepted order is. And they feel threatened by alternative things. And wrestling is no different in the sense that they have a narrow-minded and specific view of what pro wrestling is and who can be in pro wrestling and who can be a star in pro wrestling and who can run a pro wrestling company and what it can do and what it can say and what it can promote. Um, and those people feel threatened by AEW and they don't want to accept anything new and they don't want to accept anything different. Um, and that's true for like any form of media or really anything in general. People are, there are, are not everyone. Some people are, um, embrace change and are interested and curious about different things, but some people are always going to default to, their their traditional leanings which are going in the case of a lot of pro wrestling fans because they started watching wwe at a young age um is going to be wwe i think uh i guess there's kind of like a perception out there that like fans of a certain age who are old enough to remember wcw and are older enough to remember jim crockett and old enough to remember the territories are more accepting of multiple wrestling promotions existing and and being major league and things like that. And that's, there's plenty of logic to that. And that's maybe true roughly in the sense that older fans are more uh, accepting than, than younger fans would be, I think in some ways, but I also think there's a lot of older fans that have a lot of um, skin in the game in WWE preserving its dominance in the wrestling industry. I think there are a lot of older fans still taking a victory lap over how Vince beat Ted Turner in WCW and um, 
enjoy the perception that WWE and Vince are the only people that can present pro wrestling because that's what yeah. they know. And there are people that are very threatened by that. And they will tell you that nobody knows who Jenny Chiro Tenryu is unless you're a nerd. I, I think those fans are what really didn't give TNA a shot. You know what I mean? I think tribalism was a big part of TNA not really getting to TNA go to that next level. Trust. Well, that, that too, but like they also too, they just, they could never get over that million hump and their best times on Spike TV. And TNA also, I think with TNA, there's also kind of like a, um, the timing is very different in that they start up kind of like immediately after WCW and ECW kind of fault. And I don't know if there was, um, a built up longing for, uh, alternative pro wrestling at that point the way there would be when AEW popped up or when New Japan and Ring of Honor started developing and the indies started growing in the sense that those existed because there had been a long time where kind of WWE was seen as this um, top entity and Impact had kind of receded enough where it didn't feel like Impact was a true um, capable number two at that point. And that opened the door for, for another company to pop up, I think. But I think they were struggling in the sense that, you know, ECW and, and WCW go under and then you're kind of caught up in this what is going to be the future of pro wrestling and impact could never kind of figure out what they wanted to do. Do they want to promote younger high flying wrestlers doing stuff that they weren't doing in WWE? Do they want to lean on WCW and ECW nostalgia? Do they want to try to poach talent? It, it never really formulated itself into a uh, creative vision that felt identifiable to a fan base um, at a consistent enough level to, to draw. And there was poor leadership and a lot of creative stuff that at least perceptively burnt the trust of fans repeatedly. Um, that's so we've articulated. We've tried to articulate the other side of the of, of the, the the other tribe. Um, and there's there's an AEW fan who I don't want to get to like minutia of, of the way that people react, in particular to me on social media, but there's. You know, I've uh, you know, there's a lot of hostility towards you know coming from people who are who want to see WWE crush AEW, for example. But but I and and then there's people who I think up until recently to me, okay, seems more reasonable who were supporting AEW, and I believe that AEW was producing a better creative product than WWE was. Maybe it still is, but um, but I think there's there's now starting to be a, a, a sort of a legitimate vocal minority, I think, in that I, I'm starting to see people who are supportive of AEW, who want to see AEW succeed, who are, you know, waiting for... The ratings are going to drop on, on WWE the following week, and I can't wait to see what, how that is. Um, and I think that's a little bit disconnected from reality, or at least it's showing a a rooting for AEW. Now, let me try to say, can you blame them? Uh, WWE for for a long time produce a product that was very frustrating to watch that, that held its fans in contempt um, for reasons that largely have to do with Vince McMahon and the world he created around himself. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's for, so for, and for that reason, one more thing for that reason, that's one reason why AW is able to exist is because it created a, a fan base and a talent pool that was not happy with the way things were happening in WWE. Right. So logically, AEW's strength comes from, in a lot of ways, a disinterest from both fans and talent in WWE. That WWE losing, becoming weaker in that sense, allowed AEW to become stronger. 
And so there, if you're a big AEW economic fan, justice, Vince must if pay. You're, well, if you're a big AEW fan, you and you see the balance of power shifting back, and maybe AEW is getting a little bit weaker, and WWE is getting a little bit stronger. That would be concerning um, from a logical standpoint. So therefore, you could see them being resistant to WWE, the notion that WWE is improving, even if you're laying out an obvious factual fact-based argument that WWE's business metrics are up. Um, I think there is, uh, I think in, in the big difference from, for me at least, I guess, would be for WWE, the business metrics for WWE don't feel like they matter as much as they do for AEW because AEW is a fledgling company that is still trying to establish itself as a major player on television and achieve a level of financial security that WWE currently has. With WWE, we've seen it. The ratings can be down every year and they're going to make more money than ever. Um, so there's less of a interest, I think, in, in seeing um, WWE go up or WWE go down as opposed to AEW. There's a lot more, if you're an AEW fan, there's a lot more concern about it uh, happening than it maybe if you're a WWE fan. Because a WWE fan, you'll know, I think, that you'll always have WWE. If you're an AEW fan, that's certainly a less certain proposition. And I think that leads to a more emotional response. And I think it's less that... That jeopardy, no pun intended, the, the jeopardy that AEW supposedly is in, in the view of many people on social media and perhaps... It might not be founded. Pundits. It's, it's overemphasized. It's mm-hmm. overestimated. Um, I think AEW is doing well enough. Dynamite is certainly doing well enough to justify an increase. And I think there's, there's WCW brain still from 2001. Right. Um, and there's 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 people who who are I think still relying on that lesson and 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 are informing people in 2022 with a view of media that was more relevant in 2001. Um, right. Speaking, it, oh. no, go ahead, Chris. I'm done. Well, I was going to lead into the next super chat, which goes with this. Go so, yeah. um, so speaking of AEW Diamond Rings, Primo Cologne is back, and he uh, asked with the momentum AEW was on in terms of ratings in September 2021. The week two, uh, the two week Saturday move, West Coast feed and TBS move. Did that derail steam in some way? So basically, the TBS change did that really derail the momentum for AEW? I don't, I don't think the TBS thing was a bad thing. Was t- t- the move to TBS coincided with their ratings improving, um, lar- in large part due to the Big Bang Theory providing a strong lead, and that really helped at the beginning of the show. Um, I do think though that, that that fall period where you know they were preempted for the NHL didn't help probably hurt somewhat um i think that's i think the preemptions have hurt rampage that said those are not that, that i would not call those things like the main reason why we see a difference in the consumer metrics performance of september 21 versus the consumer metrics performance of september 2022 i think august and september were really really hot months for aew because they were making a lot of positive news with the addition of CM Punk, the first match of CM Punk, the addition of Brian Danielson, to a lesser extent, Adam Cole, to a lesser extent, other talent that was joining AEW. And this resulted in a really hot period that was a short time, and things kind of went back to where they were. They normalized back down. And it's easy to... 
to do an analysis of that and to and to not look at the period before the rise and to only look at the rise and start there and say oh it, it went down what did they do wrong but i think there's there's i think this is an especially true thing for modern times there's going to be these peak moments and then there's going to be this normalization back down and you can always analyze it unfavorably but yes i think the i don't know if the west coast thing mattered i think that's somewhat overemphasized in fact i think i i, I want to say at the time i I got some data to show that if you adjusted for that West Coast feed thing that was happening in in, in the fall of last year, the, the ratings were still down. I think there was a peak in interest in August, September, and it normalized back to where it was. And I think the business was still benefited by the continued, you know, by the continued existence of CM Punk and Brian Danielson to a lesser extent in, in AEW. But yeah, it, it was it was hot for a bit, and then it cooled back normalized back off with with some retained benefits if that answers the question Uh oh i can't hear you hey you're, you're muted sorry I, I mute myself when i take a drink of the coffee and i forgot to unmute all right so yes so here on to the next one uh, delmar abdi uh, asked is smackdown's non-18 um i think about 18 to 49 demo uh always I mean, flat i mean always flat or at 1.4 what do you mean by flat are we talking about the quarter hours here are we talking about across time? What are, what are, what is what has SmackDown been doing lately? SmackDown last Friday, the twenty third, did one point seven million in the non eighteen to forty nine demo. The week before that, it did one point five five million. Um, the week before that, it did one point six million. If if Delmar wants to to clarify in the chat and with not a super chat, let, let, let's put that on the screen if he wants to explain his question a little more. Okay. All right. Uh, we will uh, move on then. Uh, uh, MJ asks, is Brandon wearing a hoodie or jacket? Fashion police want to know when apparel sponsor, when is there apparel sponsor for WrestleNomics and does DraftKings give out an apparel? Uh, this is a cardigan. This is a Mr. Rogers cardigan. Not that I'm just calling it that. This is a cardigan. It's a sweater with a zipper. Uh, there's no hood, no hood. As I was telling these guys off air, I have I have this, this gray one, I have a red one, I have a dark blue one. So maybe those will make appearances in the future. We have no deal with DraftKings. Yeah, we we, we got off track at the start because Brandon was bragging about his sweater collection earlier. Um, and uh, our last super chat here is from Delmar. Uh, Zaslov debunked sale rumors, even if there was merger talks. Uh, would it not be declined by antitrust considering Comcast tried to buy Time Warner in 2014? So, yeah, we kind of talked about this on the Thursday 30 uh, with Zaslov. It's, he get, even if there was, he can't say anything about it. Cause... So my understanding is that, he, that, that Warner Brothers Discovery could not make a deal to merge or be acquired by anybody, including NBC Universal or Comcast, until 2024. Um, there's some legal limit that I don't know more about that would limit them until 2024. Um, would would su- such an attempt to merge NBCU and, and, and WBD be denied by antitrust? Maybe. Um, I think, I don't know. First of all, I don't know hardly anything about antitrust law to give you an educated answer. Uh, secondly, maybe, maybe the, the, the fact that in 2024 or today for that matter, compared to 2014 or some other time prior there's more of an argument that look there's there's tremendous competition here well beyond traditional television competition we're competing with streaming 
that would make it maybe make it this is a total layman's speculation that would make it less of an anti competitive violation I think you know what I'm saying um, he uh, he did ask a follow up on his question for he said just overall weekly uh, average yeah it does well over 1.4 million though um it, it it did last week. It did two point five million. The week before that, it did two point two million. Any, any, anybody got any ideas? If he wants to follow up, yeah, go for it. Um, and we actually just got a super chat in right away here uh, from C W J one two eight. Do you think the year to year decrease in the uh, um, a oh. Uh, oh I think he's I'm seeing a a show. I'm assuming he means. Well, uh, AA show and all out due to the promise of punk Danielson and Cole is greater than what was delivered. Thanks. So I think he's just basically because, because there was no punk while well, there was punk, but no Danielson, no Cole for, well, there was Danielson too. Yeah. I don't know. Trying to, but just because there wasn't, Hey, these big new debuts, was that why there was a decrease between all outs? I'm guessing years here decrease. Let's let's, I don't know what all AA show means, but did your, Arthur Ashe is what I think. I think Arthur, he means Arthur Ashe. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Yes. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I think the, here's what I think. I think that the, the decrease in business for All Out and the decrease in business for Arthur Ashe year to year mm-hmm. is about the novelty. The, those in, two, in 2021, those two events did bigger attendances. Is that right? It did. All Out did a bigger pay per view by number for sure. Uh, did 210, 205 versus, I don't know, 250 or something it's probably going to end up doing. Um, and Arthur Ashe did bigger at the gate, but a much lower attendance. And I think it, that the reason for those discrepancies, those differences, is that there was a novelty, especially in, in, in August and in September. Um, and the more we have things that I think are like big news stories or big returns, such as the return of CM Punk, which is both a return and a news story, the debut of Brian Danielson, which is a debut and to some extent a news story, we have this big increase and then we have a normalization. Hopefully that normalization is a little bit higher than, than, than it was before, before the, the big spike, but uh, I think... You need to look at the whole picture uh, a little bit be, behind All Out to get a full view of, of, I think, what happened. But the novelty is, is a huge deal. The, when, when something happens for the first time, it's a huge deal, and it's you're not going to be able to repeat the seven-year return to pro wrestling of CM Punk. Um, Delmar just had a little follow-up uh, with uh, his question, so watch well, let's do show. This one first. Uh, there's been times in 2021 SmackDown was doing 2.1 million with a uh, 0.51 to 0.59 18 demo. With the recent numbers, it looks like the older. If it wants to show for me here, there we go. Most weeks in 2021 SmackDown was doing uh, around 2.1 to 2.2 million, but the ratings the last few weeks have essentially been the same demos as 2021, but a big increase in that 18 to 49. So what are we saying here? That the the, the non demo is almost completely P fifty plus, and we just yeah. don't get the the issue with SmackDown because it's on broadcast from Showbiz Daily. We don't get P fifty plus data for for broadcast, but it's it's, it's essentially P fifty plus. 
mostly since 2021, SmackDown was doing around 2.1, 2.2 million viewers, but the ratings the last three weeks have been essentially the same demos. I see. Okay, so the, the non-demo is much higher. So what's the question? There's an older audience. Is there an older audience? I mean, like, I, I, I guess the, the median age chart, though, if we look at the median age chart that I can put on the screen here, if I share my screen and go to the Chrome tab and go to here, share the screen, the median age chart that we see here, I guess SmackDown is going up a bit compared to where it was, say, yeah, a year ago, where it was right on the 55-year-old line, and now it's a few years above that. Um, the audience is getting older, which is one of the, the, the weird things that we've seen here, right, between, say, Raw and SmackDown, where while viewership has, this is January, I don't know if viewership has been improving as recently as that, but it's an interesting phenomenon that we're seeing, right, where Raw is getting younger, actually, and what before Vince left, right? And is this even, like, what is, uh, we're going to do some, some accelerating in the air here to make sure that this is actually looking at the most recent info. Um, I think we are, even though this is, this is only every three months. I, th I think this is up to date. Anyway, Raw's audience is getting younger. SmackDown's audience is not getting younger. If anything, it's getting a little bit older. Why is that happening? I don't know. Any guesses? Network television versus cable. Yeah. Perhaps. Um, but I, like I said, I think raw. I think if we're going to talk about people coming back to the product, I think raw feels like if you're coming back to the product because Triple H is in charge. I think raw is more attractive to people than SmackDown. I also think SmackDown's being on a Friday night is much less attractive to younger people no. uh, than than raw being on Monday night. I messed up the colors, so let, let, let's put this away because that's just going to be confusing. Um, okay. Any, anyway, yeah. All right, so yeah, that's where we have on Super Chats. Okay. No, that, that is it. Oh, my God, we're almost at two hours. <laughs> right. Anybody got anything to plug? Uh, just uh, follow me, Chris Gello, uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, I got ESW this Saturday night in, in Buffalo River Works, uh, yes. 6 p.m., uh, 7 p.m. bell time. Uh, main event by Kevin Bennett versus Kevin Blackwood, so. I'll be working the, the back again. It should be a good a good main event. So, mm -hmm. um, I've got uh, a couple things. I wrote an article for VoicesOfWrestling.com uh, on Thursday about Chris Jericho um, and kind of the role he has played in AEW lately as as kind of like the veteran star. Um, I've got an article on Antonio Inoki. It should be coming up very soon on Voices of Wrestling. I haven't quite hammered out the publication date, but should be up either today or tomorrow. Um, all that stuff will be teased out on my Twitter page at Jesse Collings. Um, the Gentleman's Wrestling Podcast, which is on YouTube. Um, we just had an episode. I was joined by Phil Strum um, from Under the Ring Podcast, a pro wrestling discussion podcast um, on the USA Today Network. Uh, me and Phil actually work for the same company. We don't work in the same area but we work for the same company and so we discussed a lot about the media, pro wrestling media kind of briefly went through like the modern history of professional wrestling media coverage how AEW and WWE use media coverage and their media relations teams um, the public's media literacy the perception of, of wrestling media on social media uh, just a lot of stuff on wrestling media so people can find that that's on the gentleman's wrestling podcast on YouTube 
And at patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, you can get the TV rating reports that I put out nearly every day. We've been reporting quarter hours lately, too. We've been doing the Thursday 30, which is actually free for everybody throughout all of October. It'll become subscriber-exclusive beginning in November. Golo and I will go online for 30 minutes and talk the latest news in the wrestling business universe. Um, for subscribers, it is no longer the case that you got to sign up at, at the beginning of the month to get the best value for your Patreon subscription. You can sign up now anytime because we, like many others in, in the Patreon media space, have switched to the, uh, the billing cycle that just makes it so that whenever you sign up, that's your 30-day cycle. You just get charged again 30 days later. You do not get charged at the time that you sign up and then at the beginning of the month again. You just get signed. You just get charged on a regular 30-day cycle just like any other subscription service. Thank God Patreon finally did that. So sign up anytime. Get the best value. That's all. Thanks, everybody, for listening to me and supporting. Uh, Thanks to Post Wrestling for distributing our podcast. Talk to you next time. Bye. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.